We would like to thank today's sponsor, Harry's, for engineering a razor that actually gets the job done perfectly every time for less than I was paying before. You can't ask for more than that. How many times in your life has the subject of UFOs, unidentified flying objects, come up in discussion among friends? And what was your position on it? There have been thousands of reports of UFOs worldwide, some witnessed by one, others seen by thousands. Most of the people I have spoken with on the subject of UFOs believe that there is something out there, that UFOs do exist, but are they man-made here on Earth, or are they flying crafts made by another civilization outside our realm? After all, humankind created flying craft here on Earth. Who's to say that living beings on another planet, in another solar system, in a more advanced culture, couldn't have created flying craft capable of of interplanetary flight. With this in mind, I always try to approach UFO stories with an open mind. The one thing that always seems to pop up as I research these stories for my podcast, especially the stories that carry a lot of credibility, is how the governments of various countries will always do their best to suppress coverage of the event, go so far as to remove reporters from the story, remove editors, confiscate video, insert reporters to debunk the story, and make all kinds of efforts to suppress panic on the part of the public. As if the top government officials, those lucky enough and powerful enough to be trusted with a secret, seem to know best how to keep the dumb masses, that would be us, from screaming in fear and bolting from our chicken coop screaming, the sky is falling, and killing ourselves in an effort to get out of town fast. That's the way it works with UFOs, especially the ones that are very likely either top-secret government projects or alien craft of one kind or another. Thank God we have a big brother government protecting us from ourselves. A classified project is discovered by the locals when it lands in some backwater town and usually near some military base, as in our previous Kecksburg UFO episode. And orders come down from the top All local authorities, including media, police, search and rescue, are to support federal authorities in making damn sure there's nothing to see here and nothing for the media to talk about. Then, as the pattern goes, send in the UFO deniers to cover the story and let's make this thing go away. Say one word about this order and you lose your job and your pension and you'll never get a referral from us. Nothing to see here, folks. Well, here's to you, Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, and those of you like MUFON investigators Chris Stiles and Don Ledger, authors of Dark Object, and journalist bloggers like Ray McLeod, who just never gave up looking and digging. What is MUFON? M-U-F-O-N. It stands for Mutual UFO Network, the oldest and probably most respected gathering place for UFO investigations, with the web address of www.mufon.com. There was something that landed in your harbor that night on October 4th, 1967. What it was and where it went as it flew into the harbor, landed, and then entered the water and cruised below the surface of the harbor in an easterly direction is a matter of conjecture. Your stories and those of others follow with special attention paid to the way the government likes to try to debunk and cover up these stories, either in their efforts to conceal top-secret projects 
or evidence of extraterrestrials. You are left to decide. As mentioned at the top of our show, Harry's, the ingenious razor company, is sponsoring this episode and has a special offer for all you listeners, so listen up. Not many weeks ago, I was slogging through my mornings as usual, shaving with razors I would pick up at the local drugstore, getting the usual cuts and nicks and rough patches with no idea that there was actually something better out there. About a month ago, I started using Harry's, and man, what a difference. The razor handle is what they call their Truman style. It's well-balanced, and you can check out what it looks like at the trial kit page at harrys.com. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. You'll get ahead with the free trial kit, which attaches to the handle. It bends easily to your face, chin, and neck, and it's actually two-sided, one side containing a row of five incredible German-made blades for your whiskers, the other side with a trim blade, That works great for getting those stubborn whiskers under your nose or trimming around your beard and mustache. The trial kit comes free with a shave gel, the head just described, and the textured handle. And if you put the numbers 1001 in the promo code box at checkout, they'll add a bottle of post-shave balm to the kit. It's an $18 value, but all you pay is $3 shipping. Deals like this don't last forever, so take advantage of it now, and you'll thank us. And when you need replacement blades, they run around $2 each, less than half of what I was paying at the drugstore. Harry's has flexible programs for ordering blades. There's no pressure. Just set it up however you want it. So now you can support 1001 Heroes and get a better shave every time. Who knows, the alien pilot that crashed his craft into the waters off Shag Harbor was probably irritable that he just couldn't get a good shave that morning, and it distracted him just enough. Shag Harbor is a small fishing village at the southern tip of Nova Scotia, way up there in the cold country off the coast of Maine. Great fishing there, to be sure, with the promise of lucrative catches offshore. Shag Harbor takes its name from the Shag, a bird of the cormorant family, and it's a rural community, not accustomed to being the object of media scrutiny and not known for anything other than just being a quiet little fishing village. But on May 4, 1967, an event took place in Shag Harbor that would forever secure its place in the top ranks of UFO phenomenon. At about 11.20 p.m. that evening, Atlantic Daylight Time, a flying object crashed into the waters of Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia. At least 11 people witnessed a low-flying lit object head towards the harbor. Multiple witnesses reported hearing a whistling sound, like a bomb, it was described, then a whoosh, and finally a loud bang. The object was never officially identified and was therefore referred to as an unidentified flying object, or UFO, in Government of Canada documents. The Canadian military became involved in a subsequent rescue recovery effort. The initial report was made by local resident then-teenager Laurie Wickens and four of his friends. Driving through Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia on Highway 3, 
they spotted a large object with four orange lights flying into the harbor about a half a mile offshore and then rapidly descending at a 45-degree angle onto the waters off the harbor. Thinking it was a plane crashing, they were surprised to see that the object was floating on the surface, and it wasn't a winged plane. Attaining a better vantage point, Wickens and his friends saw an object floating about 250 meters, or 820 feet, offshore. At the time, reports of the object were coming into the Royal Canadian Mounted Police at Barrington Passage, which we will refer to as the RCMP, with most people early on believing that a plane had crashed into the harbor. Coincidentally, RCMP Constable Ron Pound had already witnessed the strange lights himself as he drove down Highway 3 en route to Shag Harbor. Pound felt that he was seeing four lights, all attached to one flying craft. He estimated the craft to be about 60 feet long. Constable Pound made his way to the shore to get a closer look at the phenomenal sight. He was accompanied by Police Corporal Victor Weirbicki, Constable Ron O'Brien, and other local residents. Pound clearly saw a yellow light slowly moving on the water, leaving a yellowish foam in its wake. All eyes were glued on the light as it slowly either moved too distant to be seen or dipped into the icy waters. An article by B.J. Booth explains what happens next. Coast Guard Cutter 101 and other local boats rushed to the spot of the sighting, but by the time they arrived, the light itself was gone. However, the crewmen could still see the yellow foam indicating that something had possibly submerged. Nothing else could be found that night, and the search was called off at 3 a.m. The RCMP ran a traffic check with the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax and NORAD radar at Bacaro, Nova Scotia. They were told that there were no missing aircraft reported that evening, either civilian or military. The following day, the Rescue Coordination Center filed a report with Canadian Forces Headquarters in Ottawa. This report stated that something had hit the water in Shag Harbor, but the object was of unknown origin. The HMCS Granby was ordered to the location where divers searched the bottom of the ocean for several days, but without positive results. Soon, the story of the mysterious crash at Shag Harbor died as quickly as it had begun. One of the guys who has a great perspective on the chain of events as they progressed from the night of the incident is journalist and blogger and teacher Ray McLeod, who maintains a blog called Ray's Place at www.raymcleod.blogspot.com. And I'll spell his name for you. R-A-Y-M-A-C-L-E-O-D dot blogspot, B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T dot com. In it, you'll find lots of great musings, including one named That Damned UFO and Me, Part 1 and Part 2. Ray was a staff writer for the Chronicle Herald in Nova Scotia at the time of the UFO appearance and was soon pulled off the story. Here's how he starts That Damned UFO and Me. Once, when I was a young journalist working nights for the Halifax Chronicle Herald, I wrote a story. It was a mere paragraph about a search going on in southern Nova Scotia for what everyone thought was a crashed airplane. The next day, I started calling around, dug into it a bit more, perhaps too much, and turned in a larger piece on the fact that dozens saw it, but nothing was found. To my huge surprise, it was our headline story the next morning and spirited around the world by wire services. That started it. 
and I'm still hearing about it. 41 years later, this happened in October 1967, I was the first reporter to write about what became famous as the Shag Harbor UFO incident. I mention this because recently I stumbled onto a huge website about, and you can cue the alien music here, Roswell, New Mexico. There was my article, along with discussion, background information, and theories. I feel safe to assume that most of you today weren't around 41 years ago to read it, and if you were, you've forgotten it. Given the scope of what had started, I thought I might just put it out there again. Remember as you read it, from this story came a legend, alien town signs and a special postmark for Shag Harbor. At least one person dedicating his whole life to finding the truth. UFO hunter bus tours, a comic book, and three television documentaries over the past five years alone. So, here it is. Here's the headline story written by Ray McLeod for the Chronicle Herald, Halifax, Nova Scotia, on October 7th. 1967. The headline, Could Be Something Concrete in Shag Harbor UFO, RCAF. Continue Search Today by Ray McLeod, staff writer. A spokesman for a special and little-known Royal Canadian Air Force Department in Ottawa for the investigation of unidentified flying objects said last night a series of bright lights which glided into the ocean off Shag Harbor, Shelburne County, Wednesday night, might be one of the extremely rare cases where something concrete may be found. The spokesman who identified himself as Squadron Leader Bain said his department was very interested in the matter. We get hundreds of reports every week, he said, but the Shag Harbor incident is one of the few where we may get something concrete on it. The search will continue today. The four-man diving team from RMCS Granby will be augmented by three new divers from Halifax and all seven will search from dawn to dusk. If nothing is found, special metal detection equipment may be brought in, a spokesman said. At least a dozen persons reported seeing the row of lights descend into the water, but as yet, no trace of any debris has been found, either on the surface or at the bottom. The only clue may be a wide patch of strange yellow foam sighted by vessels searching the area immediately after the object went down. Navy divers searched the area yesterday and found nothing, but we'll be back at it with reinforcements today. No ships or planes were reported in the area at the time of the sightings Wednesday. It was the third, but by far most dramatic sighting of UFOs in Nova Scotian skies in the past 10 days. Others were over the Armdale Rotary a week ago Thursday, and in Dartmouth the same night as the Shag Harbor sighting. All Armed Forces efforts are being centered on the Shag Harbor incident. But as yet, spokesmen said they had no explanation for the sightings. They began Wednesday at about 11 p.m. I was with Norm Smith and we were driving in Chag Harbor from Cape Island, says David Kendricks, age 18. When we got to Bear Point, we saw a bright light in the sky, sort of reddish-orange. Kendricks said two more lights appeared all in a row on the right decline of about 45 degrees. They came on in order, the lowest one first. They were pinpoints of light, not like flares and Kendrick said he had never seen anything like them before. He judged them to be two or three miles away in the southwest. They passed out of sight when he drove into a grove of trees. Within minutes of his sighting, Lauren Wiggins, 19, and four other young people also made a sighting from a car, but a few miles away at Shag Harbor. Wiggins said he saw four lights in a row over Woods Harbor and thought they were yellow and white in color. As he and his friends watched, the row of light which had been level, 
now tilted at a 45-degree angle and started to descend onto the ocean on a gradual glide. Like Kendricks, he noticed the lights going on and off in order and said this happened several times before it reached the water level. He said he heard nothing when the craft made contact with the water and estimated one-half mile from them offshore and due south. One friend, however, reported a whistling, hissing noise. They stopped the car to look and saw a single white light bobbing offshore. Wiggins called the RCMP. After it hit the water, we were called to the scene, said Constable Ron O'Brien of the Barrington RCMP. I saw a light floating on the water about a half a mile offshore. It was being carried out to sea by the tide and disappeared before we could get a boat to it. Constable O'Brien said he and two other RCMP officers were on the scene within 20 minutes. Many other reports of the row of lights gliding into the water that night came in through the day, RCMP said. All were at the same time in the same area. All known possibilities have been checked out. A Navy spokesman said there was no security involved on their part because the Department of National Defense reported nothing missing from aircraft or ships. No planes were reported operating in the area at the time, and a spokesman said it was unlikely anything fell from an aircraft because of the gliding pattern described by most witnesses. The Barrington Passage radar station reported no sightings at the time, the Navy said. The RCMP immediately called out Canadian Coast Guard Lifeboat 101 from Clark's Harbor, and eight local fishing vessels joined the search almost immediately. Within an hour, they were in the area, pinpointed by several sightings. Nothing was found except an extremely large patch of bubbling water and foam. Captain Bradford Shand, Shag Harbor, said he saw the strange foam, determined to be about 80 feet wide, which was yellowish in color and said that while he passed through the area every day while fishing, he had never seen anything like it before. Navy divers from HMCS Granby began investigations Friday at noon. A search to dusk in water ranging from 30 to 65 feet revealed nothing. Three more men will join the four-man team and search today. One source in the area reported fishermen very anxious to have the matter cleared up. They must pass through the spot each day on their way to the fishing grounds and are very wary of making the trip. An Armed Forces spokesman in Halifax said it was not known when a solution for the mystery could be found. Within days of writing this article, which made the front page, McLeod was replaced by staff writer David Bentley. Here's how Ray McLeod explains that in part two of That Damned UFO and Me, followed by a few of Bentley's articles. He begins by referencing an article written not too many years ago by Bruce Wark, who compliments Chris Stiles and Don Ledger's book and suggests that the government was involved in a cover-up regarding the incident, a cover-up that went as far as getting the media to cooperate fully. McLeod writes, I'm an admirer of Wark's writing. I pointed out that only if he had the original stories in front of him would he realize that their tone changed after Sunday, October 8th, when the writer changed. And even then, he wouldn't know that the editor in charge of the Chronicle Herald that night, who had given my story front-page play, had suddenly gone on an unscheduled vacation. As for me, I arrived early Sunday night to start following leads on the Shag Harbor story. I was told management, above the managing editor level, had taken me off and arranged for Bentley to do all the follow-ups, quote, because we feel we can handle it better on the day side, end quote. On the quiet, 
I was told David would have specific instructions and direct supervision. The next day, I ran into Bentley as the shifts changed. He drew me aside and apologized profusely, saying it wasn't his idea and he didn't like the smell of it. I asked him why he had not followed up on some of my contacts, including RCAF squadron leader Bain in Ottawa, whose comment had been used for my headline. Bentley stared at me and said, Bain doesn't exist. I was never sure how to take that. In any case, Bruce Wark was right. David Bentley's job was to dig up people who could pass as experts and who would deny flying saucers existed. They were to state forcefully nothing had happened over and in Shag Harbor. Over the years, two theories on what this was all about have slowly developed. One is that the Chronicle Herald Brass felt the people of Nova Scotia were being frightened by my story and the editor's front-page headline for it. They, like many others, thought our use of the acronym UFO meant flying saucers, and they didn't believe in such foolishness. You can check my original copy at Ray's place. The words flying saucer never appeared. In fact, the Air Force use of UFO implied no more than what it stood for, an object in the sky that had not been identified. On the other hand, some believe the newspaper was leaned upon heavily to get off the story for military reasons. The producer of a History Channel documentary of the event, as opposed to one for the Space Channel, shared with me his New York-based thoughts, which included that what went into Shag Harbor was top-secret Cold War hardware. It would take a couple of days, he said, for the Americans to get their act together, inform Canada what was going on, and for Ottawa to tell my newspaper to reverse gears on the situation. After all, this was the Cold War, and you couldn't tell the nice people the truth without also telling the bad guys. Last Thursday was interesting because it meant students remembered enough of what I taught them to look critically with information Wark didn't have at his column. However, it's been 41 years. I've given up hoping for the truth on Shag Harbor, and I have to admit, I wish it would just go away. Posted the 18th of September, 2008, by Ray McLeod. And now we offer a series of Halifax Chronicle Herald articles that do their best to debunk the sighting. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! From the Halifax Chronicle Herald, Friday, October 13th, 1967. Front page. DND, no knowledge of secret project. Ottawa. The Department of National Defense has no knowledge of any secret experiment going on in the United States or elsewhere that would explain the Shelburne UFO, a spokesman said yesterday. But we are keeping an open mind on the matter, and we are ready to investigate anything that is considered to be worthwhile investigating, he said. The spokesman added that when the naval team went to the south shore to prove the reported crash of a flying object there, it was not specifically trying to solve the mystery of such objects, but also investigating the possibility of a plane crash or the landing of an unusual meteorite, which other governmental departments would be interested in. And another one from the Halifax Chronicle Herald, Thursday. October 18, 1967. Headline, Shelburne UFOs Come Under Attack by staff writer David Bentley. Shelburne County UFOs received some ground fire yesterday from Nova Scotia's best-known astronomer, Father Michael Burke Gaffney of St. Mary's University. Father Burke Gaffney told the Chronicle Record that he was not too enthusiastic about them. They did not come from outside the Earth's atmosphere, and they did not appear to have any military appearance about them, he said. They remained for him simply unidentified flying objects. 
Father Burke Gaffney was interviewed after a UFO lecture to St. Mary's students. It took the form of a good-natured dig at flying saucers. The term flying saucers was applied 20 years ago, he said, and so far there was still no definitive evidence of extraterrestrial vehicles having visited Earth. As an astronomer, Father Burke Gaffney said, UFOs seen at below 10 miles were of no concern to him. And from the editorial page, Halifax Chronicle Herald, Wednesday, October 14, 1967. Nothing new to the editor. Sir, the sighting of strange, unidentified flying objects in the skies over Nova Scotia is nothing new. Why, every day, if one is looking into the sky, he'll see something which he's unable to identify. It could be a high-flying jet or one of the many man-made space satellites which can be seen at certain times. If one has to go and check on every report that a UFO was sighted, the Department of National Defense would use up an awful lot of the taxpayers' money in Cape Breton alone because there isn't a week that goes by that someone does not report. And now we offer a piece of Ray Wark's article titled Otherworldly Media regarding the incident and the depth to which Chris Stiles and Dan Ledger went to get the truth of what happened and wrote about in their book Dark Object, Bruce Wark. Just after 10 p.m. on October 4, 1967, 12-year-old Chris Stiles spotted something weird through his bedroom window overlooking the Dartmouth side of Halifax Harbor. It was a round object, glowing orange, the color of iron heated in a forge, Stiles writes. He ran down to the harbor to get a closer look. From a distance of about 75 to 100 feet, he watched the orange ball drifting silently past him, just above the surface of the water. I hadn't realized how big it was. It was easily 50 or 60 feet in diameter. Stiles was only one of dozens who saw strange things that night. The Halifax media received several calls about the orange ball gliding above the harbor. Earlier, two airline pilots flying over southeastern Quebec had observed a huge orange rectangular object trailed by a string of smaller lights. Fishers off the coast of Nova Scotia saw strange lights, as did an RCMP officer and two game wardens on a deer poaching stakeout near Weymouth. At around 11.20 p.m., the RCMP detachment in Barrington Passage received several calls from people reporting they had seen a large, lighted object descending toward the ocean near Shag Harbor. Callers reported whistling noises, a whoosh, and a bang. Three RCMP officers raced to the scene, fearing an airliner had crashed. They and about a dozen other people watched as a craft with a white light on top bobbed about half a mile out to sea until it seemed to slip slowly beneath the surface. Later, fishers and mounties who sailed out to the site encountered a patch of glittering yellow foam about 80 feet wide and half a mile long, but no other trace of what official government documents referred to as the dark object. Wark continues, that is only part of the suspenseful story Stiles tells in Dark Object, the 2001 book he co-authored with Don Ledger. It's a meticulously researched account of the world's only government-documented UFO crash. The Shag Harbor incident was back in the news briefly last month as the two authors addressed an annual symposium near Shag Harbor. The speaker's list included Stanton Friedman, a nuclear physicist in Fredericton, who has been investigating unidentified flying objects for more than 40 years. In his most recent book, Flying Saucers in Science, Friedman outlines what he sees as overwhelming evidence that alien spacecraft are visiting Earth. Yet he notes that government officials continue to deny such visits 
or suppress information about them while the mainstream media and so-called academic experts debunk them. Surprisingly, in 1967, the Halifax Chronicle Herald initially took the many eyewitness accounts seriously. The paper ran a huge front-page headline saying the Canadian Air Force believed the UFO might be a concrete reality. It carried a detailed report on a second UFO sighting in the Shelburne area less than a week later and published an editorial urging readers to keep an open mind about the possibility that the UFOs could be alien spacecraft. The editorial also speculated that the UFOs might have been experimental U.S. warplanes, as some scientists had suggested. Then, the Herald carried a lengthy report quoting a priest astronomer at St. Mary's University who asserted flatly that the UFOs did not come from outside Earth's atmosphere and may simply have been optical illusions. Suddenly, the many consistent descriptions from eyewitnesses were overridden by an expert, in quotes, with no direct experience. It's a familiar reporting pattern in journalism where credibility is king. Controversial claims get dismissed unless they're endorsed by officials or academics. Styles and ledgers cite evidence that the UFO was observed floating at sea, submerged, and made its way underwater to Shelburne Harbor, where it was joined by a second craft. Navy divers were sent down to take pictures from half a dozen ships anchored above, but the government has never revealed what its investigations turned up. The strange events of October 4, 1967, remain shrouded in mystery. And that ends Bruce Wark's article. And finally, this report from Mutual UFO Network, MUFON.com, which we recommend you visit. That's M-U-F-O-N.com. And these guys rely upon donations from folks like you and I to keep the lights on. Source, MUFON Canada, the Shag Harbor Incident Case, ID 166. One of the most extraordinary UFO encounters of the 20th century occurred in the tiny fishing community of Shag Harbor on the southern tip of Nova Scotia. This event, while relatively obscure in the sense of public awareness, is one of the most thoroughly and officially documented UFO encounters of the last 30 years and is easily as sensational and as mystifying as the famous Roswell incident. In the evening skies of October 4, 1967, several residents of the village first noticed a rather strange grouping of orange lights. Several eyewitness accounts indicate that there were four orange lights that evening. Five of these witnesses included a group of teenagers who watched these lights flash in sequence for several minutes and then suddenly and rapidly dive in a sharp 45-degree angle toward the water's surface. To the amazement of the teens and other eyewitnesses, on hitting the water's surface, the lights did not immediately disappear beneath the gentle swells but seemed to float on the surface approximately one-half mile from the shore. The initial panicked reaction of the observers was that they were witnessing the emergency ditching or crash of an airplane. The first report phoned into the RCMP in Barrington came from a young fisherman who told them that an airliner had gone into the bay. The first reaction by the police dispatcher was that the young man had been drinking. However, after an immediate rash of ten additional calls reporting the incident, the police quickly recontacted the young fisherman for location details. Within the same time period, however, Constable Ron Pound of the RCMP was on patrol on Highway 3, heading toward Shag Harbor, and had been observing the strange lights as he increased his speed toward the incident. Constable Pound's report was that he believed that the four lights were coming from a single craft 
that he estimated to be about 60 feet long. As Constable Pound reached the shoreline, he was joined by two other officers, Police Corporal Victor Weirbicki and Constable Ron O'Brien. Additionally, several of the fishing village's residents stood on the shore watching and questioning what to do next. According to Constable Pound and the other officers, the orange light slowly changed to yellow, and the object appeared to move slowly across the surface of the water, leaving a yellowish foam in its wake. By this time, no fewer than 30 witnesses from various vantage points watched as the object slowly drifted further from shore. All would later describe the object as about 60 feet long, 10 or so feet high, and dome-shaped. After about five minutes, the object started to sink beneath the icy North Atlantic waves. A few of the eyewitnesses reported hearing a whooshing noise. While the RCMP had already been in communication with the Canadian Coast Guard and Cutter 101 was on the way, two of the RCMP officers and a few local fishermen hurriedly launched their boats to speed to the rescue of any survivors. As the small boats and Cutter 101 reached the location, the lights were no longer visible, but they found themselves sailing through a thick yellow foam that indicated that something had submerged. The fishermen report that the foam was not sea foam and looked like nothing they'd ever seen. In fact, most were unnerved by the fact that they had to sail through it to look for survivors. After several hours of searching, nothing was found and the search was called off at approximately 3 a.m. Both the NORAD and the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax had been contacted by the RCMP and found that there had been no reports that evening of missing aircraft, either civilian or military. On October 5th, the following day, the Rescue Coordination Center filed a report with the Canadian Forces Headquarters in Ottawa. This report stated that something had crashed into the water in Shag Harbor, but the object was of unknown origin. The Canadian Forces Headquarters dispatched the HMCS Granby to the Shag Harbor crash site, and using advanced detection equipment and specially trained divers from the Navy and the RCMP, the Canadian military systematically searched the seafloor for several days, but found nothing. Here, in 1967, the mystery ended with no physical evidence ever recovered and no additional leads. For a few years, the MUFON report continues, the story kicked around in the local papers. From time to time, various theories and intriguing rumors emerged about Russian spacecraft or Russian submarines and an American follow-up investigation. Then the story simply faded into obscurity. That is, until 1993, when the Shag Harbor incident once again was brought to the attention of the public. This was due to the dedicated investigative efforts of two men who are MUFON investigators. Chris Stiles, assisted by Doug Ledger, using public records such as newspaper clippings and police reports, were able to track down and interview many of the eyewitnesses and individuals involved in the Shag Harbor sighting, the rescue attempt, and in the subsequent investigation. Through their work, some extremely compelling clues and amazing new insights were uncovered. In interviews with divers and crew members from the HMCS Granby, they discovered some startling information. The object that dove into the waters off Shag Harbor had been tracked, and it had actually traveled underwater for a distance of about 25 miles to a place called Government Point. In the 1960s, the U.S. had maintained a small but technically advanced military base at Government Point, managing a magnetic anomaly detection system for the purpose of detecting and tracking submarines in the North Atlantic. The U.S. military had most definitely detected the object on its sensitive tracking equipment. 
Naval vessels were dispatched and positioned over the unidentified object where it had stopped. After three days of no movement and not knowing exactly what it was, the military was planning to initiate an investigative salvage operation. As the Navy waited and planned, the detection equipment picked up another object moving in and to the amazement of all those involved, joined the first object on the ocean floor. The speculation at the time was that the second UFO, I guess officially now an underwater flying object, was there to render aid to the first object. Not fully comprehending what they were dealing with, the Navy decided it was best to stand by and observe. For nearly a week, the Navy vessels held their position over the UFOs. The detection base, however, located a Russian submarine that had entered Canadian waters to the north, so several of the vessels had to be pulled off target to sail north to investigate. Under the cover of this new activity on the surface, both UFOs made their move, accelerating underwater toward the Gulf of Maine. The remaining Navy vessels pursued them toward the United States, but the objects continued to distance themselves from their trackers. To the astonishment of the pursuers, both of the objects broke to the surface and shot skyward to vanish within seconds. According to the researchers, while these observations were well corroborated by many credible eyewitnesses, these accounts were given off the record by military, ex-military, and civilian personnel who fear harassment, ridicule, or loss of pension. So as the saying goes, only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Clearly, a series of very extraordinary and still unexplained UFO encounters involving the navies of two countries and NORAD occurred at Shag Harbor on October 4, 1967, and in the following week in the deep waters off the coast of Maine. And that ends the article by MUFON. And here's my thoughts on the matter. If the government was experimenting with fast-moving craft that could enter the water, travel for miles beneath the water, and then exit the water at high speeds, in 1968, how is it that we haven't seen any of this technology being used in the past 40-plus years? Was the program dropped? Funding pulled? Like so many other UFO incidents, we may never know the truth, and we're certainly never going to get any help from our governments on that one. And here's a reminder on that Harry's Razor free trial kit. If you're currently using the latest version of one of those big company razors, you're probably also noticing that prices on replacements are probably going up each time a new space-age plastic version is announced. Harry's bought out a 90-year-old razor manufacturing company in Germany, and they aren't going up on their prices. They're still $2 per replacement head, about half of what those big companies are charging, and about twice as long-lasting. Take it from me, this is the best razor, bar none, I've ever owned. Go to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, order the trial kit, and get the Truman Razor by Harry's. One five-blade cartridge head with the five-blade shaver and the trim blade on the other side, a tube of gel which works terrific, and a bonus tube of post-shave balm. When you add our show numbers in the promo code box at checkout, 1001. So go to harrys.com, follow the free trial kit pages to the checkout, and put 1001 in the code box, and you'll get the kit plus the tube of post-shave balm for only $3 shipping. You'll be supporting our show and getting the best razor you ever owned 
and an $18 value for only 3 bucks. Man, what a deal. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You can catch all our episodes at 1001storiespodcast.com and chime in with your opinions at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes or Twitter us at 1001podcast. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. Story.